are humbled by Chapel Street Church meeting its serve the world goal. And it's going to make a huge impact uh, in our war-torn African country at Hope School. Uh, we're packed. We're ready to go. We're flying out of O'Hare this morning. Uh, in our suitcases is more than 100 pounds of books. And uh, your gift is going to impact us being able to go from using 20% of the facility to all of the facility in the next couple years, grow to more than 1,000 students in the next decade, impacting more than 10,000, and then including their family members, that's a, a direct impact in the next decade of like more than 100,000 people and indirectly millions as we pray for a movement of house churches in the tens of thousands. Yeah, we are so thankful. Thank you. Thank you, Chapel Street, for all your love. Um, we've just been so blessed, and not just with finances, but with mentor teachers and people volunteering and wanting to come. And um, we're just so thankful. So thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. This gift is not only going to be able to help us reach the students we have now, but the students in years to come. And it's so exciting to be able to share Jesus with all of them. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's, um, I, I mentioned this last week. I spilled the beans, I think, a week too soon, so that's on me. Um, so for our Serve the World partner during Advent, uh, Doug and Carrie and Hope School in, in Africa, um, our goal, if you remember, was $500,000. Through Advent, which uh, we counted as, as uh, December 28th, was um, the last day of that giving, was $528,000. From December 28th through the end of the year was an extra $120,000 came in for Serve the World. So almost 600 and yeah, we can. And that money goes to help other Serve the World partners like Hope. I mean, God is just, and it's almost, in this whole thing, for me, it was as if God was kind of like, how many times do I need to show up before you're going to start? Because during the whole time, I was like, man, this is. This is a big one, Lord. Like, I don't know. It was a harder story to tell in many ways um, because of the, the sensitivity behind it that we had to use. And God just moved among his people in powerful ways as he so frequently does. And once again, um, did incredible things. And so thank you. Thank you for being a part of that. Thank you for your generosity. Um, we're excited to update you all as the work continues to progr uh, progress there and, uh, and share those updates with you. I also wanted to highlight an event that's coming up at the end of February. Uh, we are doing something called Good Design, and it's going to be a summit on God's sexuality and, and gender. Uh, and this is going to kind of coincide with some of our discussions in the book of Genesis, but this is meant to be an equipping event for Chapel Street families. So the target audience is, is you all. And there's really two kind of defined purposes. One is we want to help build a clear understanding of what the Bible teaches on topics of sexuality and gender and our faith in him. What does it look like for us as followers of Jesus? I would say pastorally over the last probably five to seven years, one of the most frequent questions that I get has to do with some variation on these topics. Just kind of relationally, pastorally, I would say people ask all the time. And so we want to help speak into that. We've got a, a, um, just an amazing lineup of speakers. 
Preston Sprinkle is coming, if you're familiar with here, uh, her, uh, him. Rebecca McLaughlin, uh, McLaughlin is coming. Uh, Rachel Gilson will be a part of this from Wheaton College, Mark Yarhouse. Um, so just people who are experts in their field. But then the second tier of this, the second goal in all of this is to help equip the church on how to love our neighbors and friends and coworkers and family members all around us that may not agree with our perspective or our input. Like, how, what, what do those relationships look like? How do we speak into that as, as a community? So I'm really excited about this. I think it's going to be great for us as a church family. And, and I want you to know that you are invited. In fact, we are asking people to register for this because it'll be at Kesslinger. And we have obviously limited seating. And so um, that registration is now open and you can sign up for this. But um, I encourage you to, to not only sign up, bring your family. I think it's going to be a really valuable experience together. So there's more information for that online. And uh, speaking of Preston Sprinkle, um, he has a podcast, some of you may know, uh, called Theology in the Raw. And I, I, it's one of those that I like go back to kind of time and time again that I listen to regularly. And he had uh, on his podcast, he had an author, theologian by the name of E. Randolph, uh, e. Randolph Richard. Um, and uh, this, this podcaster, this author, wrote a book and called uh, Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes. And part of his experience was he was a, a professor in a theology and a missionary in South Indo e uh, uh, Indonesia, and he was talking about how culture impacts the way we think about and understand Scripture. And he was giving an example of this. He said one of the uh, times he was giving his students a test and he was collecting them and he went over and he noticed that one of his students didn't answer one of the questions. It was a multiple choice test. And so he said to her, you, you didn't answer number two. And the student was like, I know. Like, and he's like, but shouldn't you just guess? And she kind of looked at him with like this almost sort of like offended look. And she said, well, but I might, I might accidentally get it right. And so well, that's, that's, that's kind of the point. And so, but, but then you would think I know the answer to this question. And wouldn't that be dishonest? Wouldn't that, like, wouldn't that be a, 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 aren't I compromising my integrity to, to do that? So here's this, this woman who's grown up in this honor culture where it's like I would never inadvertently communicate to my professor that I know something that I don't know. And here he is, like the professor, his brain is operating out of American pragmatism, right? Like how many of us like, uh, we have lucky guessing to think for an ACT score, right? Like that's, <laughs> that's, that's sort of our kind of mode of operation and we don't think twice, but then these cultures were sort of coming into the same space at the same time. And he was like, whoa, like I see this very differently. So one of the challenges for us as we seek to study and, and understand and interpret scripture when we think to talk about the impacts of that in our life is, is reading something that was written in a culture far different than our own and understanding how that impacts what, what the Lord wants to communicate to us. And that is particularly true or certainly true when we're reading a text as ancient as the book of Genesis. This was written, you know, in a culture entirely different than our own. 
with different sets of values and assumptions. And so we, right, we can come into this from a modern sort of worldview, American mindset, and we bring our assumptions and our, our kind of values, and we even probably maybe bring a little bit of our own agendas, and we start to lay that over the text as we draw conclusions and make applications. And I think this is particularly tempting when we're in something like the first three chapters of Genesis, because those three chapters are dealing with some of life's most foundational questions. The word Genesis literally means beginnings. Right? This is the beginnings of the universe. This is the beginnings of the earth. It's the beginnings of, of life and of humanity's ability to be in a relationship with the very God who speaks into all of it. Speaks into our very, who spoke it into being. Right? And it all starts here. By the way, uh, Sandra Richter, who I think, is a, I think she's at Wheaton College. Um, she's a professor in Old Testament theology. She wrote a book called Epic of Eden, and it's a great resource into kind of the culture of the ancient Near East uh, world that, that this was written into and how that informs our understanding. So how do we approach this? How do we approach these questions and this text and, and these, what Genesis stirs up for us? Questions like, how did all of this get here? Right? Who, who am I? What's my purpose? Who is God and, and who are we in relationship to thee? How are we supposed to interact with him? What's our relationship supposed to be about? And then what went wrong? And, and, and what's being done about what went wrong? So today we're going to revisit those verses that John Dixon read last week or had read um, in, in the first 13 verses of Genesis chapter 1. And as we do so, I want us to kind of approach this text with this question in mind, is what does Genesis 1 reveal to us about God? What, is these, what do these verses teach us about who God is, about his character and his nature? So turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, and I'll read this, and then we'll talk a bit about it. <coughs> it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now the earth was formless and empty and dark covered the face of the watery depths. And the spirit of God was hover, hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and he called the darkness night and there was evening and there was morning one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse. And so it was. And God called the expanse sky. Evening came and then morning the second day. Then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so, and God called the dry land earth. And, and, and it was so, and God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the water he called the seas. And God saw that it was good. And then he said, let the earth produce vegetation, 
seed-bearing plants and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And so it was. And God produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and tree-bearing fruit with seed according to to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning, the third day. So here, as we, as we enter into this text together, right, the question running through our heads is, can we, can we identify what the original author wants to communicate to me? Can we, can we identify what they're trying to get across to us in this? Again, Sandy Richter in this video um, that she does, she's teaching on this passage, right, she asked that question, she like had kind of a, a dramatic pause for a second, then she's like, right, what happened to the dinosaurs, Right? Like, the clear meaning of the text. Like that the author likely does not have dinosaurs in mind at all in this. Rather, this, this ancient Near East poetry is designed to center us on the character and on the nature of God. And so I want to I think about this in terms of questions, but re- the series is called The Gospel in Genesis. And so it's the question of who, but I'm posing this as the good news of who. This is the good news of who. When, when Sherry and I were dating in college, this is before any of us had cell phones and, and that sort of thing. And so in order to like, communicate, we would write little notes and love letters and we'd post it on this bulletin board in our dorm floor. So you'd walk in from class or work or whatever. There was this bulletin board and like you're kind of hoping that maybe there's something there and take it up to your room and, and you would devour this this letter right now you just have to do like heart emoji kissy face emoji hug emoji and you've said it all and um but what if i wrote sherry a letter and sherry took the letter and she went up to her dorm and she started to read it and she started to kind of process the letter grammatically and to think about well i don't i don't think that comma should be there you know like that doesn't make sense and then what if she started to kind of like what what kind of paper did he write this on? And I wonder where he was and when he wrote this. And those can be sort of interesting questions, things to consider, right? But what if she did all of that and she missed what I wrote in the letter? What, what, what it, would it be possible if, if she's hearing all of that and she didn't see what I, how I said how much I love her and appreciate her? What, what if she missed how I wrote in there, how I feel when I'm around her, how I would do anything for her? Like, how tragic would it be to study that letter and miss all of that? And the same is true for us. Right? Genesis begins with these words, in the beginning, God. Right? These are perhaps the four most important words in all of Scripture. Genesis begins by acknowledging the, whose story this is. Right? It, it's a story about God, and I, this sounds simple and obvious, but it is absolutely critical and it's foundational. It's essential to understand and to acknowledge. Right? In our culture, there's two, I would say, primary uh, narratives that sort of define how we think and act in our space. The first would say that we are are merely sort of biological, uh, organic matter. 
And so we're, the makeup of our, our organic matter and electrical pulses that are firing in our brain and really at the heart of kind of that view of all of this is essentially that life is meaningless. Okay, this is the Richard Dawkins quote that John Dixon posted last week. And when you take that to its natural conclusion, that's sort of the inevitable result, if we're honest with ourselves. The other cultural narrative that I think is perhaps more pervasive in, in our day and age, and I would kind of define this as the, the radical expressive individualism, is that I am, how I view the world, how I view life is kind of all up to me. So the mantra, right, of the radical individualist sort of view would be like, you do you. Like you are, you are kind of the center of your own universe. And we all are. We're all just kind of making the best out of all of it. And, and what's fascinating to me about Genesis 1 is that I think Genesis 1 is actually a corrective to both of these things. Right? It's, I'm, I'm not the center of the story, but it's not as all, I don't matter either. Because God creating me, we're going to get more to that in the, in the coming weeks. And so there's so much about our understanding of who God is and why he created that we're first introduced to in, in, in Genesis chapter 1. Right? In contrast to other ancient Near East cultures and, and, and how they understood the world, God in Genesis 1, he is described as the eternal one. He, he's described as the self-existent one, the God who creates but was not created. Here in Genesis 1, we're introduced to the God who is preeminent, the one who surpasses all others, and the one who is all-sufficient. So he is without beginning and without end, and he is without need. He's without need. He's dependent on nothing outside of himself. In Genesis 1, God does not emerge victorious from this cosmic battle of, for supremacy with various other deities, but rather God is simply revealed to us as the one who is. Genesis 1 introduces us to the God of, uh, who is infinite, the one who created all. And as creation, as we see this scene begin to unfold, we discover that this eternally existent God is the God who is infinitely powerful. He's the God who is a source of, of infinite knowledge. And, and from the very outset, we start to discover that he is a God of infinite love. Right? Even in, in verse 2, if you notice the way it describes the spirit hovering over the water, that, that Hebrew phrase there is it was typically used to describe or depict a mother bird hovering over its nest. Right? So the very infant part of scripture is we first introduced to the story we see this God who is caring and nurturing the creation that he's made here in Genesis 1 we're introduced to the God who's good because as we'll talk about more next week that which he created is good see if, if for God to create what is good the source of his creation right has to be good and so we're discovering not only his attributes, but also his, his character. The author's intent at the outset of Genesis is not 
It's not the means by which creation unfolds or how long ago any of this took place. His point is to reveal to you and I and to the original audience who heard it, the God who is behind it, what he is like. And subsequently, to start the process of putting you and I on a path to, to knowing him. Right? To those of us who aren't all of these things, who don't possess all of these attributes, who aren't infinitely powerful and infinitely knowing and infinitely loving, right? who aren't self-existent and preeminent. It's, it's putting us, it's designed to put us on a path to knowing and understanding him. I love in, in the book of Isaiah, if you remember the prophet, he's, this is God's, this is Isaiah chapter 40, and he's recording God's words here, and I, I think it speaks to this. Verse 25, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, asked the Holy One. Look up and see. Like, who created these? Who brings out the stars by number and calls them all by name? Because of his great power and strength, not one of them is missing. This is, this is the author of Genesis' attempt. For us to look and to see and to discover who God is. Secondly, I'll say this is the good news of how. The good news of how. There's a saying that, that maybe you've heard something like this. I've seen different variations of it, but it, it goes something like this. It says, if you see a turtle on a fence post, chances are he didn't get there on his own. I'd be like, I think I actually have a picture of a turtle on a fence post, right? Like, um, Sometimes it gets used in politics, it gets used in kind of different platforms, but it's, it's sort of meant to make the point that if you see something extraordinary out of the ordinary, right, it ought to cause something inside of you, a response that says, okay, how, how did this come to be? And, and I think creation is intended to serve a very similar point in our life. The same is true is in our consideration, our observation of everything that surrounds us. And I do want to make one quick point of clarity here. When I talk about the how, right, I, I, I'm not, I don't mean to refer to the debates surrounding like physical interpretations or scientific interpretations of the various theories about uh, day length and, and all of that. I really want to stay focused on the how that I think Genesis 1 reveals to us. And because the how of creation also is meant to reveal the who. And I will say that, that within theological and scientific, 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 I just invented a new word. Um, there, there has been and continues to be conversations about the ability of biblical and theological understandings of creation to coexist with scientific evidence and theory and 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 by that i mean can they coexist or do i have to claim kind of one and and reject the other and i'm i'm not going to delve too deeply into this other than to say that i think holding a theologically grounded understanding of genesis 1 and the creation narrative that we have been given as a whole, it's not, it's not asking you to check your brain at the door. In fact, you should not do that. And there are a number of resources that, that I could point you to that talk about the relationship between 
science and faith work that's been done, the collaboration that exists between the two of them. So if that's, a, if that's like a checkpoint for you in your spirit, I just want to encourage you today. I don't believe these things to be in conflict. I think they they're, have different purposes and their understanding, but um, I think you can explore both of them. But here in the text, as it relates to the question of how God creates, right, it simply says that he speaks it into being. He creates with his word. And again, there's this, this poetic pattern that unfolds here, that flows here. And God said, and it was so, and it was good, repeated over and over and over again. Again, this is, this is very much in contrast to kind of the other ancient Near East creation narratives. And so I want to just, a couple things real quick that I want to highlight here as we think about the how. Um, because it, it speaks to the power of, of God's word. And again, the how is, is showing us more about the who. First is that God's word creates something from nothing. God's word creates something from nothing. The, the word that's used here in Genesis 1, that's translated as create, is the word, the Hebrew word bara. And it's a fascinating word. Like that I wish we had more time to, to go into today. But in short, it's a word that's used uniquely of God. So it's, 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 uh, we can't barah, uh, like a ham sandwich, right? I can't take the components and create like a ham sandwich. That's actually, that word is actually used in Genesis chapter two, but in Genesis one, right? It's, it's saying that this is something that can be uniquely done by God, right? It's creating out of nothing. It's ex nihilo. So God's word here in Genesis 1 is his agent. Right? It has the power to create merely because God is speaking it into being. Uh, one quick side note here. This, this word, barab, this is the exact same word that King David uses after his infidelity with Bathsheba. And he is, is, had her husband put on the front line so that he would die. Right? He's covering up some pretty egregious sin, and he gets, he gets confronted by it, by the prophet uh, Nathan. And, and he, in Psalm 51, he starts to pour out his heart to God, and he says, create in me a clean heart. Oh God, would you brah in me a clean heart? I need you to make something out of nothing here, because I can't, I can't now make myself clean again. This is something only God can do. Secondly, God's word brings order from chaos. It brings order from chaos. Genesis 1, 2, I, I, it says, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the, the surface of the watery depths. So as creation begins to unfold, or God's word speaks creation into being, and there's this ancient description of chaos. And in the midst of the chaos, now God begins to, to shape it and form it and give it purpose. And now we're starting to discover that this God who is creating is a God of intention and design. In fact, verses 3 through 13, they start to show us this thoughtful ordering of, of what was previously chaotic. There's this poetic artistry that the author uses to inform our understanding of who God is based on what he is doing. And again, uh, uh, this is a work that he continues to do. 
right? If you flip over to Ephesians, Paul uses a, a similar argument when he's talking about like Christian maturity. This is from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14 and 15. He says, Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit, but speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. So, so Paul's making the same, like this thing that he does where he, he takes chaos and puts it into order, it's, it's the work of spiritual maturity in our lives. He's this, he still does this stuff. Thirdly then, God's word brings light and life. The, the, the result of God's creative word is, is light in the darkness. And it's life where there was none. The Apostle John, when he is describing the significance of the arrival of Jesus in the flesh, right? The, the arrival of the incarnation. He intentionally echoes Genesis chapter 1 to describe the meaning of, of the word becoming flesh. Let me just read this over you. Sorry. I'm bouncing all over the place today. John 1. Hear this. Notice, notice the, the correlation here. This is how John describes the arrival of Jesus. He says, in the beginning the, was the word. That's logos. That's the, way Jesus, uh, that's the way John is describing Jesus. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And all things were created through him and apart from him. Not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. John intentionally, as he's describing who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, he echoes Genesis chapter 1. This is, he brings light, and he brings life. This is also why, by the way, when the disciples are on the sea with Jesus and there's a storm that they assume is going to overtake them. And you remember Jesus stands up and he says, be, be still. And the disciples at the time are like, wait a second. This, this is why, because who commands the earth and the wind and the water? Like th this is like their eyes are starting to be like, oh, wait a second. Like maybe Jesus is more than just a a rabbi, maybe he's just more than really wise. Maybe this is God in the flesh. This brings us then to the good question of why. The good news of why. And perhaps for, for many of us, this is the question, this question of why might be the most pressing of all of these questions. Like why did God bother to do any of this at all? I think first, one of the answers that immediately comes to mind for me is that his creation declares his glory. Right? This is, he's making himself known. The universe declares the praise of our God, and it's this unceasing chorus of honor and glory. And when we perceive it, when we understand it, we are invited into it to join creation in its worship, which in, in turn serves to draw us to him, to relate to him. Again, in, in, in Romans chapter 1, Paul makes this similar point. 
He says this in verse 19 and 20. He says, since what can be known about God is made evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. Creation invites us into relationship to know our creator. But secondly, and I think what lies behind all of this, in in my humble opinion, is God creates because God loves. God God creates because he loves. And we're going to, this is sort of a teaser into what's coming over the next couple of weeks, but we talk about the image of God in us and, and God's perfect love existed that perfect unity within his relationship in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all depicted in Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit hovering over the water, the power of the Word creating, the Father, um, Son, and Holy Spirit all existed together in perfect love and unity. And God, out of his great love, he, he creates both as a reflection of his glory, but also in order to give us the to be recipients of that love this is the why behind creation because because god is love and the desire of one who loves is for the recipients of that love to experience so god creates the best thing that could ever happen to any one of us is to understand to perceive how much god loves us And he created us for that express purpose. To know his love, to understand it. And so he created. The universe is is the vast display of the glory of God, far greater than than we could ever take in. And the earth is going to be the very place, site, on which he's going to demonstrate how far that love would go through the redemption of his people. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to invite Eric and the worship team to come back up. And I want to just conclude our time together. Um, I'm going to invite you to stand with me for a second, if you would. I'm going to read from Psalm 136. And if you're familiar with Psalm 136, there is a, a pattern here, a repetition And I'm going to read the first phrase, and then I'm going to just ask you to respond with me. His faithful love endures forever. I'm going to read through this together as as just an opportunity to think and reflect on his great love for us and what he has created. Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of Lords. He alone does great wonders. He made the heavens skillfully. He spread the land on the waters. He made the great lights. The sun to rule by day. And the moon and stars to rule by night. Amen.
I think that's just a perfect response to Genesis chapter 1. God created you so that you would know how much he loves you. He created out of, out of his great love. If we can pray with you this morning, it's a privilege to do that. My prayer team is available up here, our prayer team, and, and uh, um, invite you to come forward. If you came prepared to give this morning, our generosity boxes are by the two side doors. And then uh, if you are at all interested in women's Bible study, don't forget uh, Heidi will be out at the kiosk, just kind of out these center doors um, against the wall there. She would love to share with you uh, ways to get plugged in. It's going to start this Thursday. Um, the 19th, and, and we would love to have you involved in that. Now receive this morning's benediction. Go now in the name of our Creator God, who out of His great love for us, created this world and He created us to give glory to His name and that we might know how much He loves us. It's in His name we pray. Amen.